welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking with Lawrence Millman. Lawrence is the author of some 18 books, including Northern Latitudes, An Evening Among Headhunters, and Lost in the Arctic. He's written for all sorts of publications, including National Geographic Adventure, Atlantic Monthly, Islands, Smithsonian, and Sports Illustrated. In his work as an explorer, he's discovered a previously unknown lake in Borneo. He's got a mountain named after him in East Greenland, and also a mushroom. Uh, he's he's a, also a mycologist. And he's spent decades collecting traditional folktales in Greenland and northern Canada. I spoke with him about his book, Last Places, which is an absolute classic on northern writing and one of my favorite travel books. And we talked about how technology is changing traditional cultures and the importance of preserving stories that are fading away. There was one thing I forgot to bring up in our discussion on on technology and how it's changing us, and that is how the smartphone has affected travel. It hasn't just made things easier in terms of, you know, well, exporting your mind to Google Maps or finding your way through the tangled medieval back streets of, a, of an old European city or finding a hotel and letting the algorithm direct you to the same places everybody else is staying in. But it, it's, it's also tethered us to the world of home in a way that completely changes the travel experience. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I'm working on, uh, on, a, on a piece of writing about a journey I did to Mongolia, Tibet, and Xinjiang in the far west of China many years ago. Uh, this, this was at a time where well, smartphones didn't exist back then. And even internet cafes had, had barely scratched the surface of these places. There was uh, an internet cafe in Ulaanbaatar, and I went there in between you know, trips to the Gobi and, and the far west just to send a message to the outside to say I was still alive. But it, it took 15 minutes to download a single email, 15, 20 minutes, if, if you were lucky enough to get it at all. So I would take a book and you know, I'd wait for that one message to load and, and you know, send, send a message out. But other than that, it was necessary to find those old plastic phone cards and then go find someplace with a landline where you could, you could attempt to get a connection outside. So it was normal to just drop off the map for weeks at a time or a month and nobody knew where I was and, or where I was going. And I mean, I didn't know most of the time either. So that's a very different experience than being tethered to home or being able to jump on social media and reach out to all your, all your old friends when you're feeling lonely or bored or, or cut off. Uh, in the pre-smartphone days, we'd have to, you just have to sit with that and suffer and learn something or, or go out and try to meet people, talk to strangers, you know, throw yourself in with like-minded others and, uh, and grow and change in ways that you, you never could if you're trapped at home. And even worse is the sort of performative travel you see on Instagram now. So I was lucky enough to experience travel before um, smartphones and internet and, and I've seen uh, how different it is now. And I feel really, really uh, fortunate and grateful that I could experience being completely cut off. The only time I've experienced that since is um, on expeditions to the central Sahara where, where there just was nothing, no way to stay in touch. So that was one of the things I forgot to bring up with Larry when we were talking about technology. So I thought I would um, squeeze it in here into the intro, but I've talked enough and you want to hear from uh, Lawrence Millman. So let's uh, get at it. Uh, 
Morris Millman. Welcome to Personal Landscapes. So you want you were you started to tell me just before I hit the button there about uh, your aversion to podcasts or your potential confusion over podcasts. Well, I don't know. I I I purposely remain distant from anything which is in a um, digital, computer-oriented, or even technological realm. So when I first was asked to do a podcast, my first, uh, I don't know, five years ago, four years ago, I had a mental image of uh, someone throwing a pea pod against a stone wall. That was a podcast, casting the pod, so to speak. Uh, and at the time, I had no idea how I could contribute to such a thing. Well, this is this is your literature degree coming out there. This parsing of language, perhaps. It, it could be, but it was. It's also my ignorance, uh, which I, I, you know, I must say that ignorance in writing uh, is a, a necessary feature. Just as when you're traveling, uh, if everything is perfect as you say it often is in Japan, everything goes right, there are no mistakes, the result uh, will be a piece of writing that is somewhat dull. Uh, it's, it's the mistakes that make uh, the writing interesting. Well, disaster stories are always, uh, are always much more enjoyable to read about, especially when they happen to somebody else. And that's, um, that's a good place to bring up your book, Last Places, which isn't a disaster story, but... Uh, it's one of my favorite books, actually. So one of the things, uh, like one of my main goals with this podcast is to highlight books that I think are, are classics of the genre and uh, encourage people to read them. And and this is one, in my opinion. So yeah, maybe you can set the story up for me a little bit here. So the, the journey follows the route of the Vikings across, uh, across the North Atlantic from uh, the Shetlands, right, to Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, and Labrador. Well, actually, it starts in Norway, uh, but I don't spend much time talking about Stavanger, which is uh, one of the points of departure that the uh, Norse, I prefer to call them Norse rather than Vikings. I think of Vikings as individuals who uh, destroyed the ports of Europe uh, uh, for reasons that they themselves uh, thought important, uh, i.e., uh, grasping goods and grasping women and uh, all sorts of other things. It was the Norse who left Norway uh, because they had a hard time dealing with King Harold Fairhair, and they looked for a place to go, and uh, they went to Iceland, but en route, Shetlands, Faroes, and Iceland. And then some of them left Iceland when it became overcrowded, only 4% of the land was arable. So they went to Greenland, thanks to Eric the Red, who called it Greenland, and which I believe uh, was in his mind an accurate description of a place that had 24-hour sunlight, uh, photosynthesizing plants, and uh, compared with Iceland, which had, I think, uh, half a dozen more glaciers than it has today, uh, hence Iceland. So I followed that route, but the book really isn't about the Vikings. Uh, it's about place, and it's about my, my uh, love for northern places. And I use the Vikings journey, sorry, the Norse journey, see, I can make that mistake as well, as a point of departure uh, for my own journey. The, the section of the Faroe Islands, that's, 
that one really stands out for me. It's a place I'm quite curious to visit. I actually bought a set of maps right before the pandemic started. So they're they're sitting on my map table here, uh, calling me to go hiking as soon as things reopen. But and you told you told the story of an eagle who dropped down and carried this guy's two year old son to the highest pinnacle and left it there. And when they finally got up there and found it, it you know it, it had died. But now the the guy that you were speaking to said um, nobody lives there anymore. Only a family of cranky and extremely antisocial trolls. And he said, "Trolls? Do you believe in trolls? Nay, but they're there anyway." <laughs> and that just summed up so much about uh, so much about uh, what I remember of Iceland, the, the wit of the people, you know, and their worldview. Were the, were the Faroese uh, similar in that respect? A little bit less so than, than Icelanders. Um, you know, uh, you know, a more of a, a stolid uh, working type people. And I, I would say that uh, they were quite interesting, and especially the traditional ones. The younger ones could be confused with Danes and are indeed part of Denmark. Uh, the old, older ones had stories like the one I you just read, and uh, there were all sorts of wonderful dancing. I was hitchhiking once. I don't know if I, I mentioned this in last places, and I was very interested in uh, old Faroese ballads. It was the ballads that, you know, brought the language, the remembrance of the ballads inspired Faroese as a language to be reborn in the Faroes and replace Danish. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's similar to what happened in uh, Finland, um, you know, with some of the Finnish sagas, uh, which people learned, and then that language replace Swedish in Finland. This would have been the 19th century. Uh, but uh, I, I was picked up at the car. Uh, I was chatting with this older fellow, and I just happened to ask him, do you know any old ballads? And he went on, uh, mixture, I, we were speaking Scandinavisk, uh, which is a, a language that sort of hints simultaneously at Danish, Swedish, Norwegian, Icelandic, and in fact, they're always... And he said, yes, I, I know many. Um, well, sing me one. And I brought out my tape recorder while he was driving. And uh, he, we finally stopped at my destination, which was uh, 20, 25 minutes later. And he said, well, I've only, I've only um, sung, I've forgotten he didn't use the word quatrain, but he said, I think I've only sung about 125 quatrains of this. And it's well over... 2000. And I said, well, do you know them all? Uh, and he said, of course. That's interesting. I was listening to um, an interview with uh, Rex Murphy, the Canadian journalist recently, and he talked about the importance of memorization and, and committing poetry to memory and how, how um, we just don't teach that anymore. Like certainly not in my generation, but uh, the way it helps you absorb a story and take it to heart yeah, and internalize the, the lessons and also the rhythms of the story. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, you know, we don't learn it anymore, but I think what's one of the things that's happened is that uh, the computerization of life has interfered with the memory. Uh, as I said in the book you're going to ask me about in the short while, uh, at the end of the world, I, I found this plant and showed it to 
uh, a botanist at a university here in Cambridge. And uh, I said, here's what it is. He said, oh, I haven't remembered, but I don't need to remember anymore because I have this baby. And he patted his computer on its metaphoric head. I think memory has been rapidly becoming a thing of the past because of the object that we're communicating on. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about that too, when we get to the, to the, the next book, um, that and the way uh, the sense of direction is eroded, attention spans and everything. But one, one um, example of the polar opposite of that from the Iceland section of last places is the lighthouse keeper. The lighthouse keeper was 16,000 books who dreaded retirement. Yes. Maybe you can tell a, a brief, a brief story about that guy. That's I envy that guy. Like a, I, I would like to become a lighthouse keeper. Well, he, he, Johan Pedersen, a lighthouse keeper and writer of novels. And he would get on um, uh, the radio. He would be communicating weather to some of the fishing boats. And But not only that, he would read portions of an ongoing novel to the fishermen and get their feedback. Now, this strikes me as far more sensible than getting sending it to a, a critic, editor, agent, uh, uh, and get their feedback. So his novels were indeed published, and uh, he, he was helped by fishermen who were out in the seas north of where he was. He was in, um, oh, it's called the Vestfjords, uh, and he was in a place called Hornbjargsviti. And the lighthouse is no more. It was a genuine lighthouse. And he was a genuine lighthouse keeper who, you know, documented the weather and sent it to uh, the fishing boats so they would know that if, for instance, a gigantic storm was coming, they should watch out. And uh, it is now now a, a hostel for hikers. And what happened to, what happened to him? What happened to him? He retired in the 1990s, and uh, no one seems to know what happened to his library. Oh, Jesus. Uh, uh, I, I made queries. Was, I actually was writing a little piece uh, not too long ago, a couple of years ago, about that library and about the fact that I've forgotten which book, but you probably remember. Um, oh, it was Love Story, I think, by Eric Siegel. And, and I said... That's an awful novel. And he said, not in Icelandic, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning the style was probably improved in the Icelandic translation. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned fishermen as well. Um, I remember that really vividly from uh, from Iceland. We were were taking a bath with some some fishermen in the uh, in the hot tub, you know, in uh, Akureyri at uh, right by Lene's place. We mentioned something. Tomoko asked my wife, asked uh, this this fisherman that that was working on the whaleboat is it true that uh, icelanders give you know books for christmas and and he said your your christmas is completely ruined if you don't get a book but he also was totally unimpressed with uh, with writers he said, you know you can't you can't throw a stone around here without hitting a writer <laughs> but we had the most interesting discussions you know about about books and about uh, literature with just these these random fishermen and they, they had such interesting opinions as well. That's that that was really uh, really great to see. It's absolutely true. Actually, that I don't know if it's true now, but in the old days, uh, I I spent two years teaching at the University of Iceland, uh, and in the old days, any number of writers would prefer to self-publish a book just before Christmas, 
and you know stand out on the street and sell it because uh, as i was constantly told you know because icelanders are all interconnected people would want to buy the book to see if something vile or interesting was written about them in that book uh, so one could make a nice profit standing on the streets of Reykjavik with a self-published book. Gosh, this gives you some hope man, for the world. What a fantastic place. The landscape as well, just an unbelievable landscape. Yes, absolutely. When I taught there, uh, I, I could have continued doing so, and I was allowed to do whatever I want. I, I, uh, I taught Walden in the Reykjavik swimming pool because it struck me that that being in a body of water would somehow approximate Thoreau's hermitage on Walden Pond. And the only body of water that seemed to be possible where my students wouldn't get hypothermia was the Reykjavik swimming pool. And so we, we were in the shallow end holding the book and swimmers were going back and forth. And one of them overheard this teaching, he was knowledgeable in literature, and he rose up from the middle of our group and spouted water and said, I am Moby Dick. <laughs> <laughs> and I had an imaginary harpoon in my hand. And I said, well, I am Captain Ahab. And he said, you have one too many legs. <laughs> uh, and we became fast friends. And actually, he was the pilot who first took me to Greenland. He made he made his living uh, as a, well, as a pilot in Iceland, uh, carrying around goods, hospital stuff, and so on. He periodically would fly his plane to East Greenland to visit a Greenlandic girlfriend there. I, I think you wrote about that in a short piece somewhere, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, it wasn't in this book. but So in this book, though, you go to Greenland by, uh, by ship yeah. uh, as per kind of the, the rules you set for the journey and that, that's a fantastic description too. Read bits here. You say, of all the miseries the sea can inflict on the hapless sailor, submerged reefs, shipwreck, giant water spouts, hurricanes, impressment into a foreign navy, amputation without anesthetic, pirates, equatorial malaise, hijacking, icebergs, accidents by torpedo, attacks by torpedoes, or multi-tentacled monsters of the deep, the one responsible for the most suffering is mal de mer. At best, you feel like you're going to die. At worst, you feel like you're not going to die, but to live on forever, besieged by dry heaves and cascades of sweat, never to reach the calm of port again. So something very Henry Miller about that, I thought. Oh, yes. One of my favorite writers. And mine as well. Yeah, there's that litany of misery, you know, <laughs> stacked up on top uh, of each but other. I, did, I didn't include one thing that I did include elsewhere in the book, Ru a roommate. And in Greenland, I had a roommate who, once he found out I was American, he was an Elvis Presley obsessionist. And he spent the, all the time, 24-7, doing Elvis imitations and singing uh, Elvis songs with a Greenlandic accent. And that might strike you as amusing. But after an hour or so, it loses its amusement and becomes, well, right up there with having one's leg amputated without an anesthetic. I can well imagine. Jesus. The other thing I liked about this... Um... This description to at the end, you you were talking to the uh, the captain of the boat, and he he said uh, that he'd been seasick in one form or another for virtually every day of his nautical career. Yeah, yeah. And you asked, you know, why don't you get a job on land? You know, and spare yourself this agony. And he said he loved the sea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it's very uh, common among Icelanders. They they not they're they're 
you know, a seagoing nation is seasick all the time, and they get um, well. It's something. It's it's equivalent to seasickness. Riding a bus over bumpy terrain, they get vehicle sick too. So they're susceptible to sickness when they're not walking, but when they're in some sort of uh, form of transportation. But so you have you have quite a long. Um a long history or connection to Greenland as well. Yes. Did, did you live there for a while? I, I lived there. I lived there after Iceland because it was cheaper and because I was collecting Icelandic folk tales. Um, I had gotten a grant, a Guggenheim grant to, to document Inuit folk tales from Greenland and North, uh, Northern, well, Northeastern Canada. And so I lived in, East Greenland, and I, I picked up East Greenlandic. I actually picked up Greenlandic via uh, a certain fellow who thought that the best way for me to learn a language was to learn the obscene words first. And this was not uh, irrelevant because a lot of these words showed up in the folk tales. And the folk tales would be, I mean, by a lot of standards, it's, you know, X rated or uh, at the very least, PG-13, but, you know, and they give the lie to the common belief that folk tales are for little kitties who uh, want something sweet and nice. In Greenland and in many other countries, folk tales are for everyone, and it would be considered by parents a sin not to have their kids, young kids, hear a sexy folk tale. Uh, although, although I must say these sexy in the not pornographic sense, but sexy in the sense uh, that uh, there's a lot of references to uh, bodily functions and um, uh, human beings who marry non-human creatures. I think I, I've got one of those collections. It, Kai Full of oh, Ghosts, right? Yes. Yeah, I've got that. Yeah, there's, those, they're quite good. Yeah, that book has been in print since 1987. So, so what would you what would you say those stories contain then for for readers today, apart from like an interesting ethnological collection? They contain um, the native equivalent of black humor, um, mm. you know, or dark humor. Uh, a lot of them, um, and they were told not exclusively, but most often on winter nights to keep people from. Um, being bored or being, which we say, overly cold. Uh, and they were often told, too, when there wasn't very much food around. And they were meant to be entertaining uh, in one way or another and informative. A lot of them are how uh, wind came, for instance, how wind came in the world. It's a large polar bear going around with a bag. What's in the bag, uh, a man says. Well, it's all the wind in the world, the polar bear said. Oh, I haven't ever experienced wind. Can you let it out? Well, I think you wouldn't appreciate it. No, no, let it out. And the bear does that. And wind came into the world. And wind is a major factor in the Arctic, of course. I suppose that's uh, both educational and uh, you know, it says a lot of the stories have, uh, are about human beings uh, be, making miserable decisions. 
Here, I should say that with respect to, you know, listening to stories in a difficult circumstance, cold, in a tent, having little food, uh, a lot of the stories are humorous and evoke laughter. And one of the things I thought, think was laugh, uh, missing, lacking during COVID-19 was laughter. You know, if you looked at all the faces behind those masks, you would see contorted expressions and despair and depression. And this is not the sort of thing that gets one through a difficult situation. Laughter is, and I will give an example. I was, uh, I was in East Greenland some years ago and uh, sharing some coffee with an East Greenlander on a very, very windy day. Thanks to the wind that had escaped the polar bear's bag. And uh, suddenly the wind blew my tent down on top of both of us. Coffee went flying through the air on both of us. I cursed mightily and the Greenlander laughed hysterically. And that's very significant. And I remember once I was in Iglulik, which is in Nunavut, and I was just in, in the, um, there's an anthropological institute there, and there was a photocopy machine. And a white guy was, was there and he was trying to get the machine work to work and he, he couldn't make it work. And he, he walked off saying, oh shit, goddamn hell with this. Something like that. Uh, an Inuk then came about 10 minutes later, tried to make it work. It still didn't work. He laughed and walked away. It says a lot about our culture, right? This this sort of response to um, hardship and misery. It seems that people who live in the in the most uh, relatively inhospitable places have the best sense of humor, and they they're capable of just you know laughing at misfortune. Is what the hell else are you going to do? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that that's one of the threads that goes through a kayak full of ghosts. Well, this, I came across something you you said. Uh, it was in some kind of academic interview. I don't know what the source was, but in relation to these kind of stories, you said. Uh, in places where the material culture is very bare, the need to ima- imaginatively transform the world is well nigh overwhelming. Whereas if you go to someplace verdant, you don't have to perform any transmutations because the wealth is already there. Oh, that, that's really interesting. Yes, it, and it, it's very true. Although I would revise that and say that the author of that statement should have then gone on to say that the landscape isn't as barren as someone like uh, oh, the author of, for instance, Kabluna, uh, a Monsieur de uh, Ponson, said that the, you know, the tundra, Arctic tundra is absolutely bare, no color whatsoever. Uh, not true at all. Uh, it might strike you from a distance, uh, and if you're not looking very hard, it's bare. But if you look closely, you'll see bright yellow lichens and pink flowers and incredible amounts of green. It's, it's a bit like the desert in that respect, right? Like the desert places are far from, from lifeless and bare. Like you see, you see the bones of the earth strip bare and you see the, you know, the signs of geology all around you, but you also see tremendous amounts of life if you look closely. Oh yes, absolutely. It's absolutely a lot. This attitude that, that I was describing and I was guilty of, it, it's, a, it's a temperate attitude, I would say. We're comparing it somehow these these environments with our own temperate latitudes and finding those environments lacking. And when really it's a, it's quite the reverse, right? Like ours is more overstimulated, I would say. Oh yes, I would absolutely agree. 
Oh, and, and over asphalted too. Oh, geez, yeah. So is, uh, is the language in Greenland Inuktitut? Is that the same as the Canadian North? Well, Inuktitut is the Canadian North in Greenland. Katlidit uh, it's called. And, and it is, how should I put it? It's not exactly the same. One can communicate if one speaks slowly. I mean, an equivalent might be in North America, uh, a Texan speaking to a Torontonian, mm. uh, or in Scotland, someone speaking broad Scots to some someone speaking English. The, some of the words are different. The word for seals, the different words for se- seals, uh, different in Inuktitut and completely. But you know, one if one speaks slowly, one can understand the other individual. Do you understand both? I understood. Uh, I, I've spent less time in the last 20 or so years in the Arctic. Uh, I understood Inuktitut reasonably well, one dialect of Greenlandic, East Line Greenlandic reasonably well. In East Western Canada, Alaska, Nubiak, and uh, the language Inuvialwit, uh, if I thought about what someone was saying, I could come up with a rough estimate of it, and I might have been wrong. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the far, the, you know, at some of these conferences, like Inuit, you know, transpolar conferences, people do have difficulty understanding each other. Um, and the person who has made the statement then will either have a translator or more likely, speak very, very slowly and simply as if they were speaking to a six-year-old. And one of the finest um, compliments I've ever had was in Greenland. And, uh, an elder said to me, you know, you speak our language almost as well as a six-year-old. That's pretty impressive. I thought I thought it was, yes. I thought it was. It, you know, I have to tell you, though, it could have been, I may be misremembering, it could have been a five-year-old. And were you able to understand Nufis? Oh, yes. I was easily able to understand Nufis, or at least some Nufis. I mean, some of the, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Ireland, and a lot of Nufi, the accent goes directly to Ireland, some to Cornwall, some to places like that. And I could, I, some Nufi slang I was not particularly good with. Yeah, so my cousin married a Newfie, and uh, I, I went out to visit them one time, and his parents happened to be staying with them, her husband as well. But they went to bed, and I sat up all night with the parents playing cards, uh, cribbage, and I still I have no idea who won still. I understood a fraction of what they said, but Jesus, they were a lot of fun. Yes, a lot of fun. The population on the Labrador coast adjacent to Newfoundland, uh, it, it, they're not, the language is a bit different. It's much more unfazed by it's it's more english and in fact i spent some time collecting old ballads on the labrador coast one of my one of my hats uh i i'm a collector of old songs and ballads and i found one that i it was uh referred to by sabine Baring gould the english folklorist uh unfortunately this old wonderful old ballad it was an elizabethan sea battle has died out in uh, England. He wrote that in about 1860. Well, 1990, it hadn't died out in uh, Labrador. Oh, that's amazing. 
Yeah, it, even more amazing was that uh, it was actually 86. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about baseball, but the fellow who sang it to me had his television on mute. And it was the 1986 World Series. And a famous incident occurred. Uh, a ball went through first baseman Bill Buckner's legs, thus precipitated the end of the, uh, the beginning of the end for the Boston Red Sox. And he was a Red Sox fan. And in the middle of the ballad, he sang, oh, shit. Now, interestingly, I gave that the Labrador Institute. And I didn't specify. I mean, I didn't think about it. I didn't specify, oh, shit. So no one will know why he said that. And my guess is that somebody in the future listening to it will think, damn it, this, the, the Brit, the English are losing this great Elizabethan sea battle. Oh, shit. <laughs> you've, you've altered the ethnographic record forever. <laughs> created, created a puzzle for future researchers. It could be. And, and people wanting to learn that song in the future uh, at the appropriate moment will say, oh, shit. <laughs> and I think one thing I wanted to ask you about, too, before I, before I get out too far off that, that kind of region of the world, but um, nothing to do with last places, but Yan Mayan Island. What, what were your impressions of that? Like, that, that's a, quite a difficult place to reach that I'm, you know, I've seen it on the map and I'm curious about it. Oh, this, to me, it's one of my favorite places in the entire world. One reason being bereft of people. Um, it is extraordinary. I, 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 you're going to have to pardon me when I start, you know, pausing more and, and you know, my language becomes loaded. Um, I, I was, I've been there twice, once with an Icelandic fisherman and once on a cruise ship. Both occasions, I was absolutely struck by its extraordinary quality, especially the West Coast, which is a lot like Iceland, in fact. It's very basaltic, um, you know, and in these little basaltic holes, thousands and thousands of nesting seabirds. And on, on the, the beach, I, one of the reasons I went there the first time, I, I wanted to research uh, stories that Inuit had been blown off course in their kayaks from East Greenland and ended up on Jan Mayan. And I was looking for uh, tent rings on the, east, on the West Coast uh, where they might have camped and stayed for a while. I didn't find anything. But what I found were thousands and thousands of Siberian drift logs that had gone up one of the rivers in Siberia, gotten into one of the polar gyres and um, brought down by the Greenland drift. Uh, and a lot of them ended up in Greenland, a lot of them in Mayan. It just an incredible sculptural scene in the midst of which were thousands of skeletons of birds. I mean, I think no major artist could have come up with anything to me nearly as aesthetically appealing as that area of Jan Mayan. And is that an active volcano as well? Yes, Berenberg. Um, you know, it is indeed. And and uh, what's the fellow's name? It was uh, an Irish uh, saint who sailed um, past Jan Mayan. Uh, he didn't realize it was a volcano. He, he thought, who was that saint? He was a well-known fellow. I just can't remember his name. I'm not good with saints, Ryan, I have to tell you. Uh, but he believed that it was simply a community of blacksmiths. And all the smoke coming up was 
the result of their blacksmithery. I guess that's a natural, the natural conclusion to jump to that far north, eh? this community of blacksmiths. That would be a natural conclusion. He must have bypassed Iceland because if he, if he hadn't, he would say, oh, bloody hell, yet another community of blacksmiths on Jan Mai. I suppose it'd be better than the smoldering pits of hell, I suppose. Yeah, much better. No, Jan Mayan to me is is otherworldly and beautiful. I've seen photos. It looks quite incredible. So did you, you didn't fall down or plunge into or slide off anything there? No major mishaps? No, I didn't. And, that, and you, you've mentioned some of my uh, favorite practices. <laughs> it comes um, up quite often here. That's a common theme. It's a common theme, yes. And I'm currently writing a memoir in which I put it in uh, uh, whenever possible. The memoir has me emulating, at times, Henry David Thoreau, except that I have to say that um, Thoreau was never as inept as I've been. Well, I think you've been attacked by more birds than him as well. I, yeah, but he never went to places where birds did any attacking. I mean, I did, you know, the skuas that you read about in the Shetlands in Last Places, Arctic Turns with my friend Lana uh, on Grimsey. We were um, we went into Arctic Turn Haven, and Arctic Turns are really serious attackers. And one of the things they do when they attack, they will dive bomb you, of course. But in the act of dive bombing, they will shit on you. <laughs> Jesus! And by the way, vultures do the same thing if you're near a tree where a vulture is nesting. But uh, my anorak ended up uh, to to uh, the casual observer my anorak would have looked uh, as if it were uh, created to be white spotted. Um, there were so many defecatory uh, marks on it from Arctic terns. It was interesting too, to read about the various attack patterns of these birds. They were quite different. But one of the things I was uh, surprised to read was that the skua was the, the only living creature ever seen in the vicinity of the South Pole. Yes, it is. it is. I'm not certain it's the same skua. It could have been a different skua than the uh, one in the Shetlands. Um, but uh, yeah, they, I don't think they migrate from north to south the way Arctic terns do. I, I think it was just a different. And I've, I've seen, though, uh, a bird that considers itself, and I consider too, infinitely superior to skuas, two ravens attacking a skua in Iceland. And one of the ravens is flying under the skua upside down, and the other is on top of the skua. And the skua is looking back and forth, and the ravens are pecking it. They're getting rid of it. They're taking it away from maybe there's carrion they want. But they were driving that poor skua crazy, and it escaped. And they went flying back to wherever the booty was. Upside down, that's incredible. Yeah, ravens often fly upside down. I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah. So do you have any desire to go to the South Polar regions at all? Not really. Is it, is it the, the culture, the lack of uh, you know, indigenous cultures to explore? That's one of the main reasons, Ryan. And another reason is that, uh, what should we call it? There's a certain type of individual called a tourist. And it's almost impossible to avoid crowds of them when you head to Antarctica. Um, you know, there are very few solo trips that people make to Antarctica. I would like to go to South Georgia, though. Yeah, yeah. South Georgia looks fantastic. I've, there's, I got a map of South Georgia a year or two ago. I, forget, I think the British, the British put out a, a really interesting map. That, that looks like an incredible place. 
Yeah, it does. It, I know people who've been there who've uh, connected with uh, uh, wildlife, the walrus, the penguins, and so on. And I would be, I'd like to go there and do some hiking. Well, somebody followed Shackleton's trudge across the island as well. Yeah, I, I remember though, I can't remember who it was, but I think was that, was that in a book or an article? I think I saw an article about it. Yeah. It was a, several years ago, but, uh, and I think it was even a struggle for them with modern equipment and oh, having, yes. having prepped for it. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and Shackleton wasn't in the best of health when he made that, having endured, uh, I think it was Elephant Island or something. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, so, but he did this trek. And by the time he reached the cabin uh, in South Georgia, Gritdiken, the capital, an only village, the person who was there opened the door saw this wrecked looking individual and said, my God, who are you? Not recognizing a famous Shackleton. Well, and didn't he turn around? He said, oh, my men are back on the other side. And he turned around and went back. I'm trying to remember that. I'm not an authority. I have to tell you on this, this you know, it's the North. My, my compass points always point North, never South. Well, so, okay, so, so let's talk about that at the end of the world then, the, um, the more recent kind of book of place that you wrote of the North. So it's, the, yeah. story, the story talks about a series of murders that occurred on a remote group of islands in, um, in the southeast corner of Hudson Bay in, in what, 1941? Yes. So maybe you could, you could kind of summarize what, what happened, and then we, we can dig deeper into that. Well, what happened was a series of murders that Christianity uh, was had only recently been brought to the Belcher Islands. And um, these islands were animistic. Uh, they, in fact, very few outsiders had visited, apart from a Hudson Bay Company person and filmmaker Robert Flaherty, who at that time was an iron ore engineer. Um, so the people were really not accustomed to the outside world. And... Um, you know, they had a bit of Christianity. A few of them went to uh, on the mainland uh, in uh, Great Whale River uh, a Church. There, they would pick up a few oddments of Christianity. Then there was uh, in uh, late 1940 a meteor shower during a period of, um, shall we say, not quite starvation, but there wasn't a lot of cuisine available. And one man declared himself. Jesus and another man declared himself God, and anyone who didn't believe in them was Satan. There were a lot of Satans, and the best way to get deal with Satan was to kill him. Um, and that's what happened in the Belcher Islands. But I found a hard time writing about this for whatever the reason. And then I realized something that uh, I couldn't write about the past without writing about the present. And the present-day religion that is killing, albeit metaphorically, so many people, i.e. technology. Uh, so the book really juxtaposes these two things. You know, I pursue the, my time in the Belchers. I talked to a few elders. A lot of people weren't willing to talk about these issues because they found it embarrassing. It made them seem very primitive. Whereas I thought just the opposite. It made them seem very animistic, which to me 
is a superior religion to Christianity. Um, and, you know, I describe in the book uh, various experiences I had uh, getting the, that material. Uh, and I alternate that with experiences I had where I would see, for instance, a, a mother fingering her eye device, followed by a toddler who may have been two or three years old, saying over and over again, password, password, password. Yeah, you, it's interesting how you how you put these two things together throughout. Like you, at some some point, you had written that uh, each represents a particular world coming to an end. Yes, exactly, and I feel that way even more now, uh, almost four years after the book was published than I did then. So it, it, you also you also wrote um, the greatest migration in human history is the current move from the real to the virtual world. How would you say um, technology has changed the way we see? Like, what what does the future hold for the West if we're increasingly isolated from from the physical world? Yeah, one way it changes the way we see is it it prevents us from seeing. We don't see the world outside the square little box that we're looking at. Uh, I just in that book I mentioned. Um, I think I mentioned the book. Uh, I mentioned one of my books anyway. Uh, walking on the street in Boston. And I see a woman swaggering back and forth, figuring her eye device, not looking at anything else. And I think, oh, she's going to move to the left. I'll go to the right. She'll move to the right. I'll go to the left. Uh, I misread her movements and she smashed into me. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just trying to find out the weather. Jesus. And I made a gesture around and walked away. Um, you know, I think this pretty much sums up what's going on. It's how is it changing the way we see? Well, it's, you know, it's not just to see. It's our other country senses, too. Uh, see, smell, hear. Uh, I've often uh, repeated uh, when someone is, is uh, let us say, obsessively talking to someone else on a eye device walking down the street and I hear the words I love you and I say but I don't love you and more often than not they won't even hear because they will be so focused on their that own little non-realistic world although it happened once actually when I was at Walden and and there was a fellow uh, there on the shore and I was walking and uh, maybe it was the presence of uh, Thoreau's spirit that allowed him to hear me. But uh, he was saying, talking to his girlfriend, presumably, uh, and said, and I love you. And I said, well, I don't love you. And he looked around and looked at me in astonishment. And I said to him, well, we, we, we haven't known each other long enough. Well, the other, the other interesting thing, too, about this, so you said um – in the, in the book that the Inuit had uh, enlarged hippocampuses because they needed complex mental maps of their surroundings. And that's another thing we're losing with, with yes. this reliance on GPS and Google Maps, just mm -hmm. any sense of, of direction or where you're headed. Absolutely. And now in, in, in places like Greenland and elsewhere, uh, people are relying on GPS and when satellites and other things fail them, they don't know where they are. And uh, several times, uh, boats in East Greenland disappeared, and then a month or so later, the body of the person 
holding their little device, shows up, washes ashore somewhere. You know, they were utterly lost. It's interesting. When I when I moved to um, when I first moved to Malta, I think twenty eleven, the GPS didn't work at all there, and the island is just just a maze of little villages. You know, really. Um, entangled little villages and i had an atlas but it's the it's the worst atlas i've ever seen short of the mongolian road atlas which was just, <laughs> was completely fictional yeah this 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 thing like the um villages were laid out in alphabetical order so if you're if you're trying to navigate from one village to the next and they're all interconnected they, they were just not they're on completely different pages so you're driving down this bottleneck alley and you can't you can't flip to the next page fast enough and anyway you can't conceive of it from uh no. From the alley, the, the alley that you're in. So, like, you quickly have to learn to make mental maps. Like, I would turn into one village, and I'm thinking I have to get across this place to a different village. And you'd go down an increasingly smaller and smaller alleys. It fold the mirrors in. You think, Jesus, what the hell? It's twisting and turning, and then you plop back out again, right where you left, right where you'd gone in. Thinking, how the hell did this happen? But it didn't take long, you know, to create a. Each time you get lost like that once more, then once more you make it a slightly different turn, and you you gradually develop a sort of a taxi driver's appreciation of these, these villages. I quickly uh, learned how to map my way in and out of these places, but you know, you, you just don't have that if you're relying on the, the screen at the front of your car. Yeah. I'm going to read a very short poem now from my book, Goodbye Ice, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I believe that you were amongst the people who blurbed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's about this very subject. It's a very short poem. So no worries. Uh, that you will be wound up in uh, uh, one ambiguity after another, because <laughs> it's not ambiguous either. Walking the tundra, I don't need a GPS, for I can easily see purple saxifrage and blue harebells, sedge meadows and fell fields, reindeer lichen and willow thickets, arctic cotton and lemming burrows, glacial erratics and glacial rubble all of which tell me where I am, and indeed, who I am. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, the connection of, of um, people and culture to place is really strong. Huh? Yeah, indeed it is. I think it was in At the End of the World, you talked about, um, you, were, you were sitting talking to a guy, I don't, I don't remember if it, it was in Labrador. Per, no, 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 End of the World, no. It's in uh, somewhere along the edge of Hudson Bay, but he the wind blew through oh, the yes. trees and he didn't even look up. He just identified which tree was moving just by the sound that the wind made through the branches. Moose factory. A moose factory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he could identify the sound uh, of the wind and balsam poplar, spruce, birch, uh, et cetera. And then he did say to me, and we're losing this knowledge. The young people don't have it. The other thing that, I find that while I really lament with that is just you lose your brain in the process. Like you don't, you lose the ability to just improvise and think up solutions. Like we were, um, I was in uh, Italy several years ago and my wife had a, some photos being exhibited in a small town called Faenza. And we picked up a, a car in Bologna at the airport and the rental cars in, in the Bologna airport, it's, it's miles away. You know, you have to trudge so far to, to get your car. And we get in and I had this sat nav that I carried with me plugged it in, you know, went to look for the address and the thing had all the maps of Europe except Italy. She said, you should, you should go back to the counter, you know, and, and rent one from them. It's absolutely not. We're just going to have to try to figure it out. So we, we pulled out onto this, this spaghetti junction of an expressway and I have no clue, like 
there were signs leading it. We could have ended up one wrong turn and you're in Sicily, you know? But then, that, but then I saw a name I recognized and I said, you know, reach, reach into the back there and in my bag and pull out that book. There's a book right at the top. And she, she grabbed it and uh, said, there's a map in the front, open it. And, and we navigated uh, just by the map in the book I happened to be reading, which was um, volume two of John Julius Norwich's History of Byzantium. So we, ah. <laughs> I recognized the place and I was able to, you know, get to the town thanks to a paper map and a book, <laughs> book of the Byzantines because nothing had changed. I agree with you. I am so bored with friends who, when I'm in their car, you know, are using their, their portable GPS and iDevice to get from one place to another. And I mean, it's, it's, I know how to get from those places, but they won't listen to me uh, because they think this, what they have in their hand, the device, the piece of technology is correct. Whereas I've done, I've walked these uh, locales hundreds of times. The one difference is that, that I, in my mind, won't know whether there's gridlock traffic, whereas the device will. So that's one virtue. One of the few, perhaps, of, of using this type of navigational tool. Well, they'll also warn you of speed traps, some of them. Oh, really? I didn't know Or speed, that. Ca- speed cameras. They're, the European yeah. ones warn you of cameras. That's quite helpful. So the other, another thing related to this, too, in, um, at the end of the world, you, you wrote, uh, part of our survival as a species may have come from listening to stories which entered our neural pathways and provided us with passed on lore as well as passed on entertainment. So are we, are we losing such stories as a result of this technology? Or are we gaining access to more global stories? I would have to say, you know, academic folklorists, and to me, that's an oxymoron, uh, will constantly say, we don't lose anything. It just gets transformed. I mean, you know, they'll say, well, you know, there's, there's this, this was true of the rural past, but it's not true of the urban present. It's different now, but it's still there. Um, and to my way of thinking, it's very obvious we're losing such stories. We're losing the stories that were told because uh, those stories had a sense of place. They were connected with uh, a natural setting and they were told in that even if it was indoors, that house, that cabin, um, you know, was situated on a hillock somewhere in a more or less rural area. And what was in the stories uh, was embracing the world around that cabin and including the cabin. And this is slow, this is being lost, not slowly at all, but with globalization, um, you know, the only stories that survive are the lowest common denominator, which are uh, a few o- occasional jokes. Like being a mycologist, I hear, you know, a constant joke, oh, are you a fun guy? Well, oh, that, that yeah. can be a, 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 a story in some people's minds. And uh, other types, but no, the, and the, the, Stories and songs, I mentioned a, uh, I don't know, 1200 quatrain uh, Thoroughese ballad. Nobody's going to remember that. And I say they don't need to remember that because they can always look it up online. Uh, and reading it out loud online is very different from having an actual person dig it out of his or her memory and recite it or sing it to you. Two things. This makes me think of two things. One is uh, context. 
Ben, you, you said that in at the end of the world, um, when I think when the RCMP were questioning these guys, the murderers, and they said, uh, uh, the one who thought he was Jesus, they didn't bother asking him if he'd ever, if he had been crucified because they would have no idea what that meant. They'd never seen trees. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're relating a story that's uh, so dependent on place and you have no clue what the things that they're describing are, then how can you know what it signifies? That's, um, mm-hmm. that's that, that deep, yeah, the deep connection of, of story to place is, uh, is really profound. And the other thing is the, um, the oral tradition, like, how certain stories have much more power when they're told rather than when they're read. Like I, I remember the first, um, I was a first year student and I took a classics course and, and the uh, professor read out the Odyssey to us. He read a bit of a bit of the Odyssey each week and just riveting, you know, to hear, to hear this guy with a really nice reading voice, uh, reading, reading the story of uh, Odysseus. It's a completely mm-hmm. different experience. You can you just imagine uh, being in a place where these tales were passed down like that. Yeah, I agree. And I I mentioned poems. And I think one reason that poems have become so ambiguously academic and so self-aggrandizingly intricate is they are no longer written to be read. They're written to be be spoken. They're written to be read. You know, whereas Walt Whitman wrote his poems to be read out loud. Uh, rather than softly in one's own mind. And I think that's, you know, one genre poetry uh, that has suffered as a result of this, that that uh, the person-to-person interaction is gone. Instead, it's uh, the person, only a person-to-verbage interaction. That's interesting, because I wonder if this, it, this happens to academic poetry. I wonder if this parallels the... Um philosophy as well how it devolved from trying to solve problems of human existence trying to understand human existence is just logic and word games i think it's very possible but my own feeling too is the realm of academia so-called ivy covered walls tends to impart its own meaning so that the philosophy essentially is a philosophy of academia uh, not a philosophy of the world outside. Um, it's a philosophy of, of square rooms and longish hallways where there isn't anything natural. Although I must say that uh, in graduate school, I did in one of the hallways, I first occasionally see a scurrying rat. In the school? In, indoors, in the, in the university hallway. And that to me, at the time, redeemed academia. Are you sure that wasn't one of the faculty? Now, that's a good question. Ryan, it could well have been one of the faculty, one of the shorter, more hairy members of the faculty. You, so you earned a PhD in uh, English literature from Rutgers. How did that shape your, your, the way you write about place? Oh, it shaped it enormously. It was a very important thing because it gave me something to react against. Uh, I immediately, uh, after getting the PhD, went to live in the west, west of Ireland, where people survived via the spoken rather than the written word. And I wrote my first book, Our Life Will Not Be There Again, about this fact and about how the culture was changing dramatically with the arrival of television and how the television was situated in the same place in a small house 
as where the storyteller used to sit. And so had I not had uh, my years in academia to react against, I'm not certain where I would be now, but it gave me something to react against. And it's one, one thing I found is very true, at least in the US, I don't know about Canada, is that some of our best writers come from boring places. You know, they, they, uh, they had something to react uh, against rather than something to embrace. I mean, middle, middle Western towns, small Indiana towns, et cetera, um, you know, they have something that uh, they want to fight. And it's, I, I think an analogy it might be a considered distant one would, be in, would have been in Soviet Russia. Uh, or any number of great composers and writers achieve their greatness, not by embracing, but by finding a way to fight the system while staying in the system, like Solzhenitsyn, like Shostakovich. It's interesting, too, that that's coming from a boring place often um, drives ears to travel as well. There's yeah. so, many, so many of the great uh, and most interesting people who wrote about journeys um, were driven away from the place they either didn't fit into the society they lived in, oh, or yes, they uh, absolutely they were bored, senseless, and they they was reacting against it, like, like a Richard Burton. Or uh, mm -hmm. so, how how long did you live in Ireland? Two years. The same period of time I lived in Iceland, and I I would tell people, you know, who said, oh, well, "Well, what were you doing um, in the U.S. before you came here, my good sir?" And I'd say, "Well." I was a prisoner of war in an academic institution. <laughs> no, it gave me, it, I don't think if I hadn't gotten that doctorate, if I hadn't been imprisoned in those four walls and watching the uh, scurrying academics um, uh, masquerading as rats, uh, I don't think that I would have been able to embrace the culture to the degree that I did and celebrate the storytelling to the degree that I did. Because the book is really about the importance of storytelling and storytelling's disappearance. And then I move on to, outside of storytelling, talk about various, you know, trades. Trades like blacksmithing, wheelwright, cartwriting, um, even uh, castrating horses and pigs. And how those two were dying out after having been around for who knows how many thousands of years. Your doctoral dissertation was um, from 1974. I was born two years before that, by the way. Not, really? to, not, not to date you, but I mean, it does, you wrote though. about uh, you, you wrote about Ryder Haggard, Pericles, and Samuel Beckett. Like you, you throw in a random Irishman, you got the makings of a good joke there. Oh yeah, but the thing is that uh, most of it was about Ryder Haggard. Yes, yeah, yeah. Adventure writer, uh, author of King Solomon's Minds, and she, and he was the favorite, my favorite writer as a kid. I mean, I maybe as a kid, I, I, I really had the adventure genes in me. And I was searched around for something, and I wanted to write about something that was totally the opposite of what everyone else was writing about. They were writing about Henry James or his equivalent. And I couldn't tolerate Henry James at all, uh, although he, he was the god of my uh, graduate program. So I wrote about this adventure writer, writer Haggard, and the title was uh, Ryder Haggard, the Male Novel. And what he offered to readers in uh, England is uh, the opposite 
of the romance type novels that both women and men wrote. Now he wrote adventure and he wrote travel novels. Uh, and I think that, you know, in those novels, uh, I saw maybe myself, maybe I saw myself in those novels when I was a, a teen and read them too. But I think that that uh, dissertation led me on. Uh, I got through graduate school with it, but it simultaneously helped me transcend um, the four not necessarily fertile walls of academia. I also read Ryder, Ryder Haggard as a kid. Ah. So the, the public library had, uh, had the King Solomon's Mines and she and, and several others as well. So, so you went from there to Ireland and... Uh, that's a place I've only been there once. My grandparents came from Northern Ireland, uh, emigrated to Canada. What struck me was the way that people told stories. Like the, they had a really interesting worldview. Mm -hmm. You know, like that. Um, I try to think of a, an example. Well, I've, I met an Irishman once in um, Croatia, and he had signed up to take some kind of a tour on, on a bus. And I saw him later that morning, and I said, "How, how was it?" And he he said he it didn't happen because he went there and the bus had left an hour early. So he he said uh, he said to the lady, uh, "What what time uh, what time was the bus supposed to leave?" She said, ten. He said, uh, "And uh, what time did it leave?" Well, it left at nine. He said, oh, "Well, were there a lot of people on the bus?" No, no, actually there weren't. And why do you think that was? <laughs> Just imparted this lesson in like a Socratic dialogue. It was sort of brilliant. Oh, that's nice. You know, it, it would have been. Um... The opposite, this was in, uh, let's say, oh, Nunavut uh, or Northern Labrador. Um, let's say it's a boat. Someone wonders what time it's going to leave and they're told 10. They don't arrive at 10 because they know that when something's supposed to leave at 10, it's going to leave at least an hour or two hours later. So the person arrives at 12.30. Oh, I'm so sorry, sir. The, the boat left 20, 20 minutes ago. I, I apologize for it being early, <laughs> although it was two hours and 10 minutes late. So this urge to, um, to preserve stories comes up again and again and again in your work. Like It comes up in the, um, the Irish book. Uh, it comes up in the, in the folktales you've collected from uh, Greenland, Northern Canada. And it, it also comes up in you're, you're championing of other writers. Like you, you were um, instrumental in getting uh, several different uh, forgotten books and writers back into print. Most of the books about the North, I think, right? So why, why was that an important thing to you? Well, because the North is important to me. According to my compass points North and because I'd read a lot of Northern literature and I thought there's, there are good books. And just as I don't want mine to disappear, I don't want them to disappear. And maybe in some sense, I'm bringing back I'm, I'm providing an avenue for myself by bringing back a whole series of uh, northern books. Like there's a wonderful book called A Woman in the Polar Night. Uh, did you read that one by Christine? Yeah, it's fantastic. That's yeah, incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, why it remained out of print in English for so long, I have no idea. So first, for people who don't know it, it tells the story of a, of a woman overwintering on, on Svalbard, the north coast of Svalbard. With uh, her husband was like what a, a fur trapper, right? A fur trapper, right? And this was her only book. This was her only book, but it it she went there thinking, oh, I'll, I'll get an opportunity to do a lot of reading and a lot of sleeping. Well, it was an eye opener, a revelation, uh, and changed the rest of her life in a way. Uh, for example, 
not long after she got home, the family mansion burned down. And oh, her kids were burst, were crying, and she was there patting them on the head. Don't worry, don't worry. There are far more important things in the world than possessions. And that's what she learned in Svalbard. Her husband yeah. uh, ended up, because he was uh, knowledgeable about Arctic region, he was grabbed by the Nazis and forced to help set up a weather station in East Greenland. He didn't want to do it. You know, uh, at one point he was reading a book in uh, uh, the weather station and one of his uh, colleagues grabbed it and uh, took it away. You cannot read books by Jews here. At one of the first opportunities when Danes came, you know, to attack uh, the weather station, he gave himself up. Uh, And he spent the rest of the war uh, in a... um, uh, a village then called Scoresby Sund, more or less under, uh, which we say, house arrest. But he got to hang out with the Inuit. He got to wander the tundra, and he was perfectly happy. What made him unhappy, though, was because of his, quote, unquote, Nazi association, he was never allowed to go back to Svalbard. Oh, that's a shame. Did he ever write anything about his experiences? No, but there are, there are one or two books about his uh, experience in East Greenland. Uh, and uh, had I been notified in advance, I would have told you the best known one. Uh, it's called uh, something Sled Brigade. Uh, hmm. Well, you, you could just grab your device there, your smartphone, and, and look that up. Oh, I, to, I was just going to say, uh, as they say in Chukotka, they have a hard time pronouncing the word Google. So they say, you, you can just gargle it. You're probably better off. I'll, I'll throw out a couple other names of, of writers whose work he championed. And then um, maybe you can tell me why you think what's, what's great about their work and why is it worth preserving? Like, why should people continue to read these? Another one was um, Edward Beauclerk Maurice. Oh, yes. The Last Gentleman Adventurer. Um, he was an English writer who worked for the Hudson Bay Company and wrote this very long memoir, which um, no one would publish at first because it was too long and too detailed and uh, too personal, too. I mean, he mentions a number of times that until he encountered Inuit women, he was a virgin. Um, but it is a wonderful sort of window both on the Hudson Bay Company in the middle of the 20th century and on a somewhat atypical Hudson Bay Company worker who valued the Inuit, at least as he valued his own countrymen. And I met him, he had a bookstore in England, uh, and I met him in sometime in the 1980s. Well, how, how old would he have been then? Oh, he was quite old. I think he would have been about uh, 75 or so. But he still ran this bookstore, and we got to chatting about the Arctic. And he said, well, I wrote a book about Arctic. Oh, I said, what's the name of it? He said, well, it doesn't matter because it's never going to be published. And I forgot all about it until I saw that it had been published in England. And uh, I got a copy of it. And then introduced it to my editor at Houghton Mifflin, uh, the publisher, and said, you have to reprint this book. And they did with my introduction. 
Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely incredible story. I, I, I do a list of um, kind of best books I've read each year on my blog, and that that was uh, definitely on there. It's a, a Woman in the Polar Night was as well. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't. And another good one was called The Golden Grindstone. Did you read that? No, I don't know that one. Oh, well, that's in the same series that was uh, published by the publisher decided that, you know, since all these books can be gotten online, they're out of print and in public domain, or most of them are, why even bother with printing a book? That was their idea anyway. Golden Grindstone is an eccentric account of a expedition to the Klondike at the time of the gold rush. I would highly recommend you gargle it so to speak, uh, what happens, and I, I don't want to give too much away, but um, the leader of the expedition ends up with uh, a damaged leg, and he's obliged to spend a long period of time with the Gwich'in native people of the northern Yukon. Uh, I'll be metaphoric in saying that what he finds is far more valuable than the gold that other people were finding. I'll look this up. I just written it down. Okay, another one to change hemispheres completely. Um, Hasselt Davies. Hasselt Davies. Did you read that? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pulling these names off my bookshelf. I can see them from here. No, that was a uh, that was an interesting book. Uh, I I interviewed his sister, who was in her 90s at the time that I was writing the introduction, and I brought up something which was that, uh, and I believe there's a photo in the book of it, where um, a certain native group in French Guiana who, as a test of manhood, would have this mat with any number of wasps stuck into it with the stingers extending. And uh, a young lad would be obliged to place it against his chest and not yell out or scream in pain. And if he didn't yell out or scream in pain, he was a man. If he yelled out and screamed in pain, it was back to boyhood. Jesus. And I mentioned that because uh, I had never read about it anywhere else. And the old woman said, just a second. She retreated into the house. We were out on her patio and brought this mat out with dozens of dried up wasps stuck into oh, it. Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. It was utterly amazing. I have a photo of it. And I was with... Um, her son and her attitude, his attitude toward her was the same attitude as many of us had to our mothers. Uh, he said to me, you know, when I misbehaved, she would often stick that into my chest. <laughs> Did you ask him if he deserved it though? No, I didn't ask him if he deserved it. God, that's incredible. Uh, it's, it's, I haven't seen, come across very many books about that region, French Guiana or these countries. Yeah. It was no, Evelyn Waugh. No. Didn't he go down a river there? Yes, he did. Uh, was it French? But I think that was British Guiana. Not for, it was yeah, British right. Guiana. Yeah, that's over a bit. And there are a bunch of books about Devil's Island. Right, yeah, yeah. Part of as well. Mostly about escaping from it. But this is this is a bit different. Yeah, that, that was another really good one. Okay, and then um, last but uh, not least, Elliot Merrick. Oh, Elliot Merrick. Uh, we, we could have an entirely uh, different and equally long podcast just about Elliot Merrick, who was one of them. Well, that's actually a good idea. We could, we could, should do that at some point to talk about all of his books. I would love to talk about all of his books. He was my guru. I felt 
sadder when he died than when my father died because I regarded him. He was my guru and he was a sort of Arctic teacher. I wrote an obituary for him in Arctic, uh, and I got several of his books reprinted. Um, uh, Northern Nurse was one, Green Mountain Farm was another, and I got uh, True North reprinted as well. Yeah, I've read uh, Green Mountain Farm and True North. I've got Northern Nurse here as well. I haven't oh, read you that one yet. Read that. You, you know, the problem with that is the title. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a little dull, and I, with the publisher and uh, with Bud, which is what everyone called Elliot Merrick, uh, we went over alternative titles to Northern Nurse, which has a certain uh, boring, sedate quality. And no, we couldn't find anything to replace it. But it is far from a boring, sedate book. I think basically it's his best book. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I've saved the best, the best of the three for last. Yeah, it's sharp, witty, uh, uh, detailed, colorful, and it's a really good portrait of Labrador in the late 1920s. For those who don't know of him, Elliot Merrick was um, what's known as a WAP. Uh, and it, it isn't the same as what would be called a WAP today. Uh, he was a worker without pay for the uh, Grenfell Association. Uh, uh, in Labrador, and you know, he helped with a number of things. Think of it as being akin to the Peace Corps, Peace Corps, but without any political association. And he ended up falling in love with a nurse, Kate Austin, uh, who was a few years older than him, who uh, also worked for the Grenfell Association. And they went on a trip together in the dead of winter on snowshoes into interior Labrador. And that's the subject of... That's in True North, right? Yeah. True North, right. But what he did, and he described this to me, uh, he recorded her, the Northern Nurse is based on, but isn't a replica of his uh, recording, her talking. And this was before cassettes and other devices. Uh, this uh, would have been the late 30s. Uh, taking notes, what she was talking about. Um, and this went on for some time, so much so that, as he told me, we wanted to kill each other. Um, but at any rate, he turned these notes with his own uh, custom, uh, customization and his own incredibly lyrical prose into Northern Nurse, which I think is one of the all-time great books about the North. Uh, I really like Green Mountain Farm as well. Well, yeah, we should do, we should do a, an entire podcast just about his work. I, think. I would love to do a podcast about him. He he was one of my mentors and uh, uh, my father in exile. And I did a uh, for the Inu Association in Labrador because he was associated with the area around uh, Shashishi, and that's where I was doing it. A talk. Well, I wanted to do a talk on Elliot Merrick, and. Uh, there were Inu and other people um, in the audience, and the woman who was Inu said, no, nobody's going to listen to a talk nowadays. You have to give uh, a PowerPoint. I said, well, I didn't bring a PowerPoint. Oh, I thought you would have automatically brought a PowerPoint, she said. <laughs> They're talking to the wrong person. You're talking, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm going to discuss him. I have a few photographs that I'm going to pass around, but basically I want people to hear my words and in hearing my words, they're also going to hear his words because I'm going to read select passages from his work. She said, no, it will never do. 
And in like an hour, she went to her computer and put together a number of images and ended up photographing my photographs. Uh, and I had a PowerPoint, which wasn't my own, that I had to talk from. It's, it's just, it's a distraction. People see these flickering images on the, on the wall and they just stare at that and they kind of tune out what, the, what you're saying. That's... No, no, they, they have to be pixelated. That's what they get pixelated by the pixelated images. Uh, and uh, they just tune out. And I mean, it, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I dare say that uh, a replica of the woman who smashed into me on the street in Boston because she was looking at the weather might have been one of the individuals in that audience. <laughs> uh, I, I hate the smartphone. I've got one, but uh, I was telling you, I was telling you before by email that um, the bank requires it now. Like you have to have this app that generates a password. You can't access your bank account and each bank wants one of these that you deal with. I really, really. I mean, does this mean no one can uh, shop? No one can have an account at your bank who doesn't have a smartphone. You can't access it online at least. So you'd have to physically find a branch and go in there during, during working hours. And I do that all the time. And, and as a result, I mean, I, my bank account, I mean, they want you to have an app and a phone, but I, I refuse and I go there and the tellers and other people are so delighted to see me. We tell stories, anecdotes. You know, I learned and there's one fellow there. I, I have a few allergies. He has dozens. We get there. I cash a check and we talk about allergies. Well, I can't go into it. Nobody's delighted to see me at a bank branch here because it's, I live in Germany. So they're, they're never, there's no such thing as small talk, but the other thing too, like if um, I write for this uh, column in a newspaper in Malta and you have to have a an app to generate a password to get into the website to you know upload or format my articles as well. So th all these things require it, but I don't. Uh, I still have to actually think I, it was after I read your book that I s started being even more conscious of of this stupid thing, and I just I leave it at home. I don't. It sits face down on my desk unless I have to use it for something specific. I never connect it for weeks at a time. I, I never carry it when I go out of the house. I have an idea for you with that. Um, in Finland, there is an annual smartphone throwing contest uh, where I've forgotten what the prize is. It's not a smartphone where people get together and see who can throw their smartphone the farthest. And the winner gets something. I've forgotten. What. <laughs> Profound relief from the phone, probably. Well, that's that's true. That's one of the things they automatically get. Uh, they're getting rid of it. I dare say some of them will have another one uh, in arrears. But I mean, there are a number of contests like this in Finland. There's a mosquito counting contest where, you know, they, the number of mosquitoes that land on you that you smashed or put out on a piece of paper and the winner gets either blood transfusion, probably transfusion or bug repellent. Is, is it, do they have the rice, the wife throwing competition? Is that Finland? They have, they, they do. Uh, well, it's not a wife throwing, it's a wife carrying con competition. It also includes girlfriends. And there was, the winner gets a big vat of beer. <laughs> I guess you'd need it after that. Well, the smartphones, you can't really hurl them like you used to. Like I've, I've destroyed, I don't know, one I dropped on the floor, one I threw on the floor, another one I punched uh, and that, that finished it. They're, they're yeah. very fragile. You, you can't throw them the way you used to though. Why? Oh, they just they just shatter. It's very satisfying. Well, they would shatter upon hitting the ground. Well, I had my first uh, my first mobile phone. I lived in Japan, 
and uh, they were they were you know decades ahead of us in this stuff. And I when I moved there, uh, I had a job teaching English. And when they collected me at the airport, the first thing they did was reach into the back seat and hand me this phone. And said you have to keep this for your work. Jesus, what would it be the size of like a matchbox? This this minuscule little little phone. I punched that thing repeatedly all the time. And it took me after about two years, I cracked the screen. But every time I get bad reception, I go into a rage, you know, and hit the thing in the palm of my hand. That was indestructible. But these these smartphones, you can't, you, know, you can't do that. It's a pity uh, that this is not at all visual because what I have here in front of me is what I call an eye stone. An eye stone. It is a stone shaped like an iPhone. On the back uh, is an apple with the word K on it. A little hole uh, that, I mean, these were written on it with the Sharpie, of course. Uh, little hole, and, you know, if I see someone trying to photograph me, I'll hold the eye stone to my eye and do that. And on the front, uh, you know, the number of, you know, a box that says how many emails I have in my email account, uh, a phone, and then uh, my, it's a sort of mountain constantly going down. And this is the amount of money I have. Weather, it's a bright sun. And I call this my eye stone. And, you know, I constantly brandish it in places where people are brandishing their iPhones. Hold it up to the camera there. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, this could, be, this could function as a sort of an oracle for you. You've got a lot of apps on there. I got a lot of apps on here. You dug your own hole with that logo, Larry. I'm sorry. That's a, that's a copyright violation. It, it is a copyright violation, but the virtue of this eye stone, it can, it can serve as a deadly weapon too. Mm. You know, if for instance, someone approaches you angrily with their camera, you swivel this around and you can whack the camera into shards, which is what uh, should be done to most of these cameras. Yeah, I agree. You know, in terms of pollution in the North, a number of things, computer devices, toxic waste. Well, it's astonishing just what washes up up there. Like in at the end of the world, you, you mentioned a laptop washed up in some, yes. some random place. Well, they said a German uh, fellow had left it there. His laptop wasn't working. He tried to get it um, repaired in San Kilowack, which is the capital and there wasn't any computer repair store. And why he left it on this small island, I don't know. But what I did see, and I don't remember if I documented in the book, I did document it in that book of poems, was in the middle of nowhere on this same island was a box of Pampers. And it was a very waterlogged box of Pampers. And I tried to imagine where it had been thrown into the sea but what I determined at the end was that there's no place in the world that's pampers free. That's that's horrible, huh? Yeah, it is yeah. indeed. One other thing I want to uh, to turn to before we before we run down here is um, another interest of yours, which is uh, culinary. I think you had one of the best opening lines I've ever read in a magazine piece where you said. Uh, when someone tells you to eat shit, it's not exactly a compliment. <laughs> and then in the in, and then in the story, you you go on to eat shit. Yes, indeed. So maybe you could you could fill us in on that. Well, you absolutely you know you know my co-diner. You have met my co-diner on that occasion too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, what happened, you know, is this that it's the grouse-like bird called the ptarmigan, sometimes called the Arctic chicken, and it, the uh, shit, the winter shit is 
eaten in Greenland, not as a survival food, but just as sort of an ordinary comestible. And it's mixed with rancid seal oil. And I'd had it there and I, you know, it was hard to taste the ptarmigan shit. So I wanted to taste it. In Iceland, where there are ptarmigan, but where this isn't a known dish, I went to a mycologist friend who had collected some ptarmigan shit to uh, culture and see what fungi grew out of it. And she gave me a batch very kindly. And I went with my friend, Lena, and we, she added some bear meat to it. And we, because it was Iceland and there are a lot of sheep, some sheep fat, we cooked up the ptarmigan shit and ate it. Well, the best part was too, you, you actually thought very carefully about which drink to accompany this. Yes, that's right. Did you, did you have that drink when you were in Iceland? Berkir, yeah. Yeah, you can get it now. I can get it around here. It, it is uh, my favorite. It's a Icelandic schnapps with a birch twig in it. Well, we just, we just, I had a bottle that I'd, I'd hoarded ever since that trip. And we just, we just drank it with our neighbors right before we moved to this new flat. Oh. So I've had it recently as well. So you've gotten it in only in Iceland or did you get it? Uh, in- no, I brought it. I brought it uh, several back from Iceland and that was my last bottle. Oh yes. I did the same thing too, but uh, I would check liquor stores in your neck of the woods. The reason you chose this was because the, the ptarmigan eat this this birch bark? The ptarmigan eat, eat birch buds and, and willow buds in the winter. Boluses of shit have a bud-like shape and consistency. So it's a natural drink to accompany such droppings. You wouldn't collect it. It would be sort of greasy and oozy if you collected the shit in the summer. So you collect it in the winter. And this was uh, late fall. Uh, this No, this was uh, April, March, and it would still be in this condition. And so we cooked it up and ate it. I, I think we gave it a B-plus rating. Uh, it wasn't bad. Uh, I did say in the article, as we ate it, we looked at each other with shit-eating grins. <laughs> well, the best part was some guy came over. And- yes, that's, that was my favorite line, and it I did not make it up. You know, he came over and asked my friend Lena, uh, what were we eating? And she said, Rupa Skitter, which means ptarmigan shit. Rupa, ptarmigan, skitter. Uh, and he said, oh, without pausing a moment, can I have some? And he had some, ate it, nodded and said, tastes good, but it needs some salt. <laughs> I, I actually met that guy as well. Did you really? Yeah. Well, we uh, we had just finished uh, having dinner at that very same picnic table, you know, outside oh, yeah. uh, next to the building, and uh, I, I brought some uh, fialagrasa, the uh, the lichen schnapps. Oh yes. And I, I we uncorked the bottle there, and we we poured ourselves glass, and that that guy showed up uh, right right when we opened the bottle. But the funny thing was, it happened again. Like we we went for a walk down by the fish drying racks. To, to see the shark where it was um, yeah, yeah. where it was drying and took a walk around there. And I'd slipped this flask into my pocket in case we needed some reinforcements, you know, to, to get back. Cause it, it, you know, it's not a long walk, but you never know. So just, just at the moment when I pulled this out of my pocket and, and uncorked it, that guy showed up again. It's, it's like a genie. I opened the bottle and he, he appears, but there was like one second. I looked around. It's quite open there. There's nothing to hide behind. He wasn't there a second ago, but when I opened that bottle, there he was again. Yes, Lana always said, out of nowhere, if she was outside eating at something, out of nowhere, he would appear. It's amazing. He's got an uncanny ability. Yeah, uncanny ability indeed. So, so where did you develop your, um, your enthusiasm for eating some of the world's most uh, semi-palatable foods? 
from my father because my my mother as a chef uh, didn't advance further than opening a tin and pouring it into a skillet and heating it up. Whereas when she was away, my father would uh, get lobster, oyster. He would cook up uh, steak a la tartare with Worcestershire sauce and so on. And I realized very early on that this was, uh, oh, also he got palm grubs from somewhere. Uh, but uh, I realized that this was a far better form of food, far more interesting and variable than uh, beans in a tin. Mm. Uh, and ever since then, I have uh, gone out after unusual foods. I'm now trying, I'm going to go be down to New Bedford, Massachusetts on Tuesday. And there are a lot of Azorian food shops there. And one of the foods I really liked in the Azores, which you might have had, lapish. Do you remember that? Was it was that the, um, uh, what are they called? Limpets. Limpets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I had it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they were good. Very good. And I uh, haven't had it since the Azores. We should, would you be willing to go back to the Azores? Oh, in a second. Yeah, it was fantastic. Maybe we should meet there. Uh, I This year has, ever since COVID, I've done extremely well financially because what's happened is this. In the past, I would make my living off, among other things, giving talks where the uh, sponsor would fly me out somewhere, put me up, and then pay me an honorarium. Now, since it's Zoom, they pay me higher honorariums, much higher. So my bank account has uh, uh, risen, and I could now afford the trip that I couldn't afford two years ago. So are you, are you saying you've actually benefited from technology? You know something? I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> this is a contradiction. I thought, I, had been, I, I thought of it as having benefited from COVID, but no, you're absolutely right. Please keep that a secret if you don't mind. Where do you see the book sales? You'll reap the whirlwind as a result of this podcast, I'll tell you right now. Oh, you think so, hey? <laughs> no, I doubt it very much. <laughs> the other goal you need to check off your list was uh, Sardinia. That's uh, cheese with the live maggots. Cheese with the live maggots. And I have somewhere around here another weird Sardinian dish. It's a kind of rancid meat, but I, can, I have to go retrieve it. <laughs> you could probably just call it over at that point if you've got some in your house. Well, I don't have it. Depending on how rancid it is. I have an article about it, but I don't have it. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, we, and we had thought about going to Sardinia too, uh, but it never happened. Well, I've got some connections there. I've got a, I went to a wedding in Sardinia a couple of years ago. One, one of my friends from high school, his family is, is from there. So he, um, he had his wedding there and we, we flew down. So I, I, I know the fire chief in the town and a bunch of people. So if, if you need like a deworming after eating that. <laughs> did you did you actually have it? No, no, I didn't. I didn't see any sign of it. I had um, Botarga. Was it smoked uh, fish roe? That was quite good. Yeah, no, I've, wanted, I've always wanted to have that too. Well, they, have it on, uh, they had it on pizza as well. That was really nice. The, the funny thing was like I was getting, we, we went for pizza multiple times with a you know, group of people. And uh, I would always order these Sardinian uh, stuff like uh, Botarga or the local sausage or whatever on my pizza. And I turn around and the kids that came with us, the teenagers, reading uh, pizza with French fries on them. Of course. I, I couldn't believe, I'll never listen to an Italian again when they say, you know, that's not Italian coffee and turn up their nose. Never again. Oh, I've had many experiences like that. I mean, before I mention one, Svalbard. You know, tourists don't eat this, but 
locals do, and I did. Whale pizza, which are chunks of whale meat on a pizza. Absolutely delicious. I could see that being good, yeah. Yeah, but I was about to say that, you know, in it was an island off the coast of Tunisia that belongs to Italy, i.e. Sicily, called Pantelleria, about which I've written. You know, I am a coffee addict, and I was chatting with an old Pantellerian through a translator, and he said, I have heard you have something in America. It is coffee where they remove the caffeine. Is this true? And I said, yes, it is true. And he shook his head sadly, and he said, America is a bad country. <laughs> I think he was on to something there. That's interesting. That's the first article of yours I, I read, I think. it was in That was in the Best American Travel Writing. Yeah. What, 2001? Yeah, it was. I think it was 2001. I, and I wrote it for a magazine called Islands, now defunct. Is that, is that finished now, Islands? Well, it's online and it's only written, only writers it has their staff. Okay, yeah. I was going to ask you about that actually too, but the, that Pantelleria piece, I, for some reason, I remember that's really stood out in my stuck in my head and for some reason I transposed the location to Lampedusa so when we lived in Malta I had a pilot friend and and uh, him and I flew over to Lampedusa for uh just for a couple nights or a night I forget what it was to, to see that but that one and then um I think after reading that article I, I found a copy of uh, an evening among headhunters your other uh, mm-hmm. collection and there was a story about uh, Anticosti Island that really yeah, stuck stuck in my memory ever since. That's a place I've always wanted to visit. Like I, I flew over it once, you know, coming coming. I don't know where I was coming back from, some part of Europe. Yeah, no, I I recommend a visit to Anticosti. It has what are commonly described as the worst roads in North America, and if that isn't an advantage, I don't know what is. Also, it also has you know it did not have a native deer population until. They, they're a French chocolate manuf- manufacturer uh, in the 1890s imported a bunch of Virginia white-tailed deer, maybe 50, 60. And the number has now skyrocketed to 130,000. Yeah, that's incredible. So he, he ran that as like a private hunting reserve, basically, right? He ran it as a private hunting reserve, right? The deer multiplied. And now the joke, it's not altogether a joke, is you can't go for any sort of drive on Anticosti without hitting a deer. So so in that book, that, that collection, and uh, also Lost in the Arctic, too, you a lot of the stories dealt with um, the South Pacific Islands and and a lot of uh, kind of tropical mm-hmm. place, Ecuador, uh, I think Borneo as well, Indonesia for sure. So you did a lot of the travels to those places in the 90s, but you you don't visit those places anymore. Was that because your focus shifted to the Arctic at that point, or is it just because the magazine assignments? Well, the fact of the matter is the editor decided her, her belief, she was a very good editor too, um, was that since my specialty was the North, she would send me South. I wouldn't write about a place that I knew or that I was immediately comfortable in. I would write about a place where, which was an unknown entity to me. And given the fact that all these trips were underwritten, how could I refuse? And they were all trips to islands in the South Pacific. This was Islands Magazine, not just South Pacific, but Indonesia, Bardio, et cetera. And I could always, if I got too hot, jump in the ocean. Not something that if I was in the midst of the Sahara, I'd be able to do. 
Yeah, I, I wondered about that because that's otherwise some of those places are just uh, prohibitively expensive to reach, like the uh, Micronesia and uh, Pon Pompeii, Yap Island, those places. Yeah, yeah, I, I love those places. Um, Pompeii, Yap. Uh, I was on an island, Fais, uh, F-A-I-S, uh, where there was only one white man. He had been there in the Peace Corps thirty years ago, and he just stuck on, stayed there, and. Uh, he would hang out with a 14, 15 year old girl. She'd live with him until she got too old, which would be 20. And then another one would move in. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal for anybody. It, it was a very, very traditional island. And uh, I, I interviewed, uh, I chatted with the chief through an interpreter. And he, he asked me, well, well, what did I think of Feist? F-A-I-S. And I said, well, I think it's a wonderful place, except it's hard for me, uh, an outsider, to get used to so many topless women. This was translated, and the fellow looked appalled. He said, but all our women have their heads. It just doesn't translate at all. Apparently, the idiom topless doesn't translate. I, I looked into trying to get there. When uh, when we were in Japan, but even even flying from Japan, was, the prices were just outrageous. It was impossible. Well, I don't know. I don't know. You would fly to Guam, which is almost a Japanese protectorate now, and then there's a direct flight from Guam to Yap. I think it was was monopolized by Continental or something at the time, and yeah. the flight, the ticket prices were crazy. It seems like an Islands magazine. Like what I remember of Islands. From from you know when I started writing twenty years ago, it was basically always about um, vacation destinations in Hawaii. So I was surprised to see the stories about these kinds of places, like the sort of places you wrote about, were the polar opposite of that. Did you write about write for Island? I pitched uh, no, I pitched them once on something. I don't remember what it was, but I never. They they were just mainly interested in vacation. Twenty years ago, I've forgotten the name of the editor, but she accepted almost anything I proposed. Uh, and I ended up, you know, I would just pick the destination and uh, she would, I ended up going to any number of small unknown places in the Caribbean, including Pine Key, which is in Turks and Caicos. Yeah, I've been to Turks and Caicos, but not there. Not there. Do you, do you know about it, though? Uh, I, I, I would have seen it on the map. You would have seen it. It's a small island. It has about 50 year round. I was on North Caicos. That that was mainly it. Oh yeah, yeah. We I went there too. Lots of iguanas. I, I got flown down there to train a guy. Like I was, I've done martial arts for years, and I was um, part of this fitness organization. I got an email from this random guy saying, "Do you want to come to the Turks and Caicos and and work, you know, work me out or whatever?" And I thought, "Are you kidding? Is this a joke?" And sure, I'll go. And I thought, uh, I looked him up, and I thought, "Okay, it's this developer. He's building a marina." But it turned out he was a, a heavy metal singer in the '80s. I mean, like the the loudest and uh, loudest and fastest band that was that was their goal, and uh, he wore jumpsuits, sequin jumpsuits, and massive hair. But he had he'd uh, in later years gotten into Brazilian jiu jitsu, and he's this massive tank of a man. And he he was married to Lita Ford, you know. She was in ah. Runaways with Joan Jett. So yeah, they they flew me down there, and he said, "Do you want to bring your wife or girlfriend or both?" So I brought my wife, and we hung out at this guy's place for a week, and. Was he white? Or was he white or or Indian? Yeah, he's an American. Yeah, white American guy. Huh. But he 
but he had a he had a, par- he had a local partner in the business apparently. Yeah, interesting. But yeah, yes, just cr- crazy character. He was uh, he he wanted to. Uh, I hope he's listening to this. I, I haven't talked to him in a few years, but he wanted to. Um, he wanted to buy one of these missile silo uh, houses, <laughs> missile silo, and put like an underground house with a lake in the in the silo and flood it and put it full of fish and <laughs> the most crazy ideas, but. I encouraged I encouraged that whenever I could. I said it was a great idea. Does he have a resort there now? I, I don't know whatever happened. Like he, he had his own house there. He built his own place and they were building a marina, but I don't know whatever happened to it. I don't think, oh. I don't know if it had ever finished. Like I kind of lost touch with him after I got out of that organization. And then we moved, you know, out of Canada. But I went down there at least twice and I saw him in, in Miami once too. Interesting character. I think we probably should wrap this up soon, but... Uh, before before wrapping it up and hitting stop here, I wanted to um, ask you what you're working on now. If you can, if there's anything you can share, what's what's next for you? What I'm working on now is a memoir. Um, it's a memoir about myself as an outsider, uh, both an outsider in terms of being outside every known social group, and the fact that whenever possible, I'm outside, out of doors rather than indoors, and I describe. From my earliest youth, uh, my pleasure in different types of organisms that people tend to marginalize, like snakes, spiders, and fungi. So I'm working on this memoir. I'm nearly finished. And you know, one of the icons in it is Thoreau. All, the reading of Walden sort of inspired me at a young age to pursue a lifestyle similar to Thoreau's. Uh, and I started by, at the age of 12 or 13, pitching a tent in my family's backyard uh, and living a week there in a Thoreauvian lifestyle. Didn't his mother bring him food in the cabin? No, he went to his mother to get food. And, and I, well, I did go indoors to get my meals. Uh, it's true. And it was much closer, being only about 150 feet, than his two mile and a half mile walk to his mother's place in concrete. So that's, that's what I'm working on now. It's interesting that early, um, early enthusiasm for camping. I had, uh, I went through a phase in high school where my, I had this friend, Rob Wilson, and we would uh, canoe out to one of these uninhabited islands in the St. Lawrence, but we were only allowed to take uh, a hatchet and a tin of beans and a book of edible plants, you know, make a rickety lean to and uh, sleep underneath that. And once we'd eaten our tin of beans and, he preferred Heinz. I preferred Clark. So we, we had quite, uh-huh. quite a number of conflicts over beans. Then we would have to forage for food, of which we found very little. <laughs> so we'd, we'd always end up eaten alive by mosquitoes, you know, and, and extremely hungry. But you should have taken along my least favorite food, spick. Is that a variation of spam? It is the Canadian spam. I don't know if we had that. I never saw that. I'm, I know spam very. I have a theory, actually. I, I, we got to wrap this up. But I have a theory too about spam okay hold on let me see if it's the same theory so you've traveled extensively in the south pacific i'm convinced that spam consumption maps onto cannibalism people who used to formerly eat people map onto people who eat spam Uh, did you read my uh paragraph on that in hiking to siberia is that where i got that from because i i've been going on about this for 20 years when did you publish that 2013 i think this is like a darwin alfred russell wallace situation it could well be we, we a parallel evolution. What I say, I have the book right here. 
On what type of cuisine former cannibals now dine? Answer, often spam, because it reputedly tastes like human flesh. Yeah, that's dead on. But I, I didn't read that uh, hiking to Siberia until you know, maybe a year or two ago, but I, I formulated that theory, geez, at least 20 years ago. So this, this could be a parallel uh, discovery. It's parallel evolution. It's parallel evolution. Yeah, that's a good note to end on then. Let's do another one of these. And I also thought about doing something on uh, Arctic books, like great Arctic writing. Well, that could also include Elliot Merrick. Yeah, uh, let's definitely do that. All right, great. Well, yeah, thanks Thanks very much for your time, Larry. You know, Ryan, it was a delight talking to you, and uh, we should get together one of these years. Uh, I was going to suggest this: these friends of mine, Italian, she's a master chef. He is a sometime writer. He also, they also visited Lena when I was visiting her uh, a few years ago. They have set up a bed and breakfast an hour and a half north of Milan, and it's in the mountains, and it's full of cuisine and good hikes, and it's a place we could meet, too. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I'd love to go hiking there. Yeah, it would be. I don't know the exact location, but it's a little over an hour north of Milan. Well, let's set that up. Let us indeed do so. Anyway, this has been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, for me, too. Yeah. Well, until then. Until then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorth.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.